So as many of you know, my maternal grandfather was a rabbi, a theologian and a teacher of rabbis for 50 years. What you may not know is that my paternal grandfather, Lawrence Langer, has a niche of Jewish scholarship all his own. My grandfather was teaching English literature at Simmons College in Boston when he received a Fulbright grant to teach in Austria. My six-year-old dad and the rest of the family came along. At some point, and this was the early 1960s, a friend invited him to take a trip to Poland to see the history of post-Holocaust Europe in all its darkness, to go to Auschwitz, which had been an operational death camp not 20 years earlier. This experience changed my grandfather. When he returned to the United States, he dedicated himself to studying the unique way that literature, art, and memory have emerged from the trauma of the Holocaust, which meant he would return to Europe several years later, my now teenage father in tow, and live in Munich while writing his first book on the subject. Now, my grandfather's unique academic focus meant that my dad grew up with an interesting understanding of family vacations. <laughs> this meant he found himself 14 years old, sitting in the back of a Volvo station wagon, driving through Czechoslovakia on the way to the concentration camp of Theresienstadt. The story that follows has become family lore long before the age of GPS and iPhone location services, my dad, grandparents, and aunt were driving from Munich to Theresien and completely and utterly lost. Eventually, they started to see signs on the side of the road. Obiishka. My dad pulled out the map and started looking frantically for the town of Obiishka. They followed sign after sign for the town while my dad protested he still couldn't seem to find it anywhere on the map. Finally, they reached civilization and they asked about and said, have we made it? Are we in the town of Obieshka? And they learned from a friendly English speaking Czech that Obieshka translates to detour. It is a hallmark of the human condition that we sift all of our sensory input into categories. When we see signs on the side of the road, we assume they are pointing us toward an actual place. And this makes sense on a basic evolutionary level. We want brains that know that a plant which looks a certain way will make us sick, or that the dark shadow with glinting eyes is a saber-toothed tiger and we should run. Looking at something and knowing which bucket to place it in can, in many ways, help us navigate our world. And of course, beyond our need to categorize stimuli, shadows, or objects, is our impulse to categorize people. We look at what someone wears, how they talk, where they live or work or went to school. 
who they love, and we slide them neatly into boxes, a distorted unatane tokef, who belongs and who does not, who is in one camp and who the other, who do we trust and who do we fear, who is worth listening to and who should be ignored. Perhaps once this too served an evolutionary purpose for our ancestors, long before Theresienstadt and Auschwitz were seared into our collective memory, Jews have needed to know, is this person trustworthy? Will I be safe? Can they tell which box I fall into just by looking? Categorization has meant survival. And yet, imagine the following. A small Jewish community gathers together as we do tonight on the evening of Yom Kippur. They live in a time and a place where to be a Jew is dangerous. In fact, some Jews have chosen conversion out of the faith. Some have been choosing that for quite some time. The small synagogue gathers. A breathlessness fills the air. They have been waiting all year for this, this plaintive sound the rush of absolution, this prayer whose true origins are shrouded in mystery. Now it is a recognition, an honoring of their humanity, their frailty, a release from vows made. The chant begins. And as the memory, melody washes over the congregation, one member might lift his eyes and glance about the room to see that there, on the outskirts, beyond the familiar faces, are strangers. Strangers who, if he saw them, as he often does, out in the public square, he would categorize immediately, not like me, not Jewish, not safe. Yet this night, he will learn that there is more to them than the box in which they've been placed. A man who converted to Christianity because he thought it would keep his family safe, but who still reads his father's sidur hidden under the floorboards. A young woman who lights a candle in her home every Friday night because it is what her grandmother did, though she doesn't know why. They, too, have come this night to be stripped of their categories, to be granted the peace of a clean slate, of a humanity which requires no definitions, an identity without vows. We believe that our boxes can keep us safe, when in fact, very often, they only leave us lost. Scholars are not sure of the exact origins of the Kol Nidre prayer, nor do they know who wrote these Aramaic words. We do know it has been around for a long time, as early as the 8th or 9th century. And as the stories go, it took on great significance for many Jewish communities in the diaspora, where ind individuals underwent forced conversion. 
Col Nidre became their one chance in the year to stand with the congregation, to nullify the vows that bound them to other faiths. The evening of Yom Kippur, with Kol Nidre its central prayer then, has become a night for the radical dissolution of categories. On this night, this melody unites us. However we present ourselves, whoever we are out there in the world, in this moment, we are all given the opportunity to make ourselves anew. Of course, the Jewish conversation on vows extends far beyond this evening's prayer service. There is an entire tractate of the Talmud called Nidarim, vows, which focuses exclusively on the laws behind the making and breaking of oaths. And oddly enough, it seems that the rabbis of the Talmud were already in conversation about the eradication of vows hundreds of years before Kol Nidre ever reached the pages of a prayer book. These rabbis took vows very seriously. And yet, they were also obsessed with figuring out how, once a vow had been made, to find a loophole to escape it. They went so far as to say the following. Rabbi Natan said, one who vows is like one who builds an unauthorized altar. And one who fulfills a vow is like one who sacrifices on it. That the rabbis wouldn't want you to make a vow is one thing, but then that they would add that keeping a vow once offered is akin to idol worship? What could possibly be so awful about the oaths we make that fulfilling them signals idolatry? Rabbi Avi Killip, in her essay titled Vows That Divide, offers an answer. In reading the Mishnah of Nidarim, that first layer of legal texts on vows, you will see that many of the stories about oath-making involve haste, regret, and unchecked emotion. As she writes, in these stories, vows are tools used to build a divide between oneself and the greater world. These vows are dangerous, because they drive people apart. They create unnecessary barriers, which prevent the community from functioning smoothly. People are meant to interact fully with God's world. These vows, she seems to say, are ways of locking ourselves publicly and completely into the categories we have created for the world around us. The danger of a vow is this, promising that whenever you see a sign on the side of the road, it must lead to somewhere, and therefore ending up lost forever. Though we don't recite any of the ancient formulas that the Jewish legal tradition believed constituted a sworn vow, we are still making dangerous vows every day. We make them every time we squeeze others or ourselves into boxes, refusing to see beyond them. Our categories become our altars and our idols. We and others become the sacrifices.
We make a dangerous vow when we say, that person looks like they sit on the other side of the political aisle from me. We must have nothing in common. I would never talk to someone with values so different from my own. We make a dangerous vow when we believe her last name sounds strange to my ears. His skin color is different from mine. Their house has a menorah and a Christmas tree. That boy likes to dance and paint his nails. That girl doesn't wear skirts. That person does not match any of my categories. They must not belong here. They cannot fit in my community. And the most dangerous vow of all is the one we make about ourselves. When we say, I am not a very smart person, not a very sensitive person, not a very thoughtful person, not a person who could ever be or do or think the things that I want. I'll never be good enough, never right enough, never enough enough. I have no capacity for growth. I am what I am, and what I am is pretty darn small. Judaism understands deeply that we are not meant to hold on to these kinds of vows. This is why Kol Nidre is here for us at the start of each new year. It is not, as Rabbi Killip writes, about a lack of integrity or an unwillingness to live up to our word. It is an opportunity to lower our walls and interact in a more fluid way with our community. Kol Nidre is a moment of complete and utter freedom, a chance to blur the hard lines we have set over the years, which do nothing for us but chain us in. What would it look like to allow this night to truly break apart our categories? What might it mean to imagine that the person you walk by on the street, the one who looks so different from you, the one who incites fear, has actually been waiting all this time for entrance into this space, the space where they no longer need be defined by the rules society has forced upon them. What kind of world could we build if we allowed ourselves to be guided not by our certainties, but by our questions, not by our assumptions, but by our openness to translation? Who could you be if you removed all the barriers of who you have told yourself you are. Kol Nidre is a summons to release our vows, our boundaries, our boxes, our borders. May this night open us to the revelatory possibilities that unfold when we choose to experience a world beyond our classifications. May we find our way forward greeting each new sign along our path with no assumptions. Tonight, you, your loved ones, your strangers, are all free 
of the chains of your categories. How will you live your lives according to that truth?